One of my favorite classes that I took in college was an introduction to anthropology, uh, also known as Anth 104, the study of humanity. And I wish I could remember my professor's name, but I can't. But somehow, over time, she's morphed into this picture of Betty White from the episode of Anthropology in the show Community. If you've not seen this show, you should watch it. I'm pretty sure she looked nothing like this, but this is what I see. This teacher, she was enthralling. Uh, her passion for the subject, it was contagious, and she was an incredible storyteller. Uh, she had done her own share of field work as an anthropologist, and one of her published studies uh, was on studying the spiritual rituals of indigenous communities throughout Vancouver Island. And she had built trust and over time was invited to observe some of their most spiritual moments. And in a lecture, our professor told us about one moment that changed her entire approach to anthropology. And she was cautious in telling this story, but very honest. She said, at this one event, she stopped being an observer, and unwittingly, she became a participant, a worshiper, even. Uh, she couldn't quite explain what happened, but over the course of the ritual, she found herself having an out-of-body experience, floating at the roof of the ceiling, looking down at her body, and she felt peaceful bliss. Now, she shared this story not to say, oh, look at this neat mystical experience. Rather, she said, we can never fully observe humanity from a safe, neutral distance. We can't ruthlessly keep ourselves at arm's length because we're meant to share in the human experience, not just describe it. Now, I didn't end up majoring in anthropology because she told me that would be a bad career choice, but I fell in love with the subject, and obviously the lesson has stuck with me over 20 years later. Uh, in this farewell series, we're doing lessons along the way. I'm sharing a few lessons that I've learned over the past 10 years here being your pastor. And the first lesson we talked about last week was about goodness, learning to show up and pay attention and discover the goodness of God with us. And there's two more lessons I want to share. Uh, one is about people and the other is about Jesus. And today, people is on the docket. And the reason I talk about anthropology at the upfront here is because the work of being a pastor, a bare minimum part of this work is being an armchair anthropologist, just very bare minimum. So much of the work is studying and interacting with people, but you can't stay at arm's length because you're sharing in the human experience of worshiping God. And when you're a pastor, you know, you, you work with people and you hear stories and you walk alongside experiences and you can't do so unchanged. All these experiences rub off on you and they change you and they shape you so that the way you see people changes over time too. We just read from uh, Genesis 18, you know, this mysterious story of three men who visited Abraham and Sarah near the great trees of Mamre. Uh, but these were no ordinary visitors, we're told. Mysteriously, Abraham has this encounter with the Lord. And the story, it's alluded to even in a brief passage in the book of Hebrews. We read, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Now, I can't say that I've seen angels showing up at St. Peter's by paying attention, but I think I've, I've learned a lot about what it is to see people over the past 10 years. C.S. Lewis wrote, next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. And I think over the past 10 years, 
I've been learning how to see all of you as the holiest object presented to my senses. And that's the lesson I want to share this morning, a lesson about seeing people. And like last week, this sermon will be less of an exposition of the two passages we've read and more of a story and uh, you know, a testimony. Uh, but I have three things I want to explore together. Uh, the first is the challenge to see, then impaired vision, and then learning to see. So let's start with the first thing, the challenge to see. Our, our second reading was from the Gospel of Mark, and it's the story of Jesus healing a blind man, and it's a somewhat peculiar story, isn't it? Jesus spits on his eyes, first strange approach, you know, medical doctors here, the nurses are like, it's typically not how we approach these sort of things. Jesus spits on his eyes, puts his hand on the man's eyes, and heals him. And Jesus says, what do you see? Well, I see people, but they look more like trees walking around. And so then Mark says, Jesus puts his hand on the man's eyes a second time, and then his eyes are open, his sight is restored, and then he sees clearly. So this is strange partial healing, a halfway healing. What is it all about? We don't always see clearly, especially when it comes to spiritual matters. You know, Mark, he places this story at the beginning of a section about discipleship, where over and over again we see the disciples struggling to see who Jesus is and struggling to walk in the ways of their rabbi. And so this section frames Mark's gospel at a moment where Mark wants us to realize this is just a fact of our Christian life. As we're following Jesus, we only see in part and we need to see clearly. Uh, the Apostle Paul, he famously wrote, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. What Paul is saying is we've, we've had this revelation of God in Christ Jesus. We know the destination. We know we're on our way to the kingdom of heaven on earth fully when Christ returns. We know this, but we also only know it in part. There's always more to discover. There's always more to learn. In other words, have some epistemological humility, people. You don't know everything. That's what Paul's getting after. But what we have to internalize then is we actually only see in part. We are like this blind man who is being healed and coming to see more clearly. But sometimes, right, sometimes the clouds part and our eyes open up and we really see what is sitting before us. In his memoir, the pastor, Eugene Peterson, he shares about the challenge he had of seeing people as a pastor. And here's what Eugene wrote. Every once in a while, a shaft of blazing beauty seems to break out of nowhere and illuminates my mind. I see what my sin-dulled eyes had missed. Word of God-shaped, Holy Spirit-created lives of sacrificial humility, incredible courage, heroic virtue, holy praise, joyful suffering, constant prayer, and persevering obedience. Shekinah. And sometimes I don't. Ziglag. Now, I emphasize with Eugene here, sometimes, you know, my eyes are really open and I see what is before me. I feel like I really see the people of God as the holiest object presented to my senses. And then sometimes I don't. And Eugene, he calls this experience Shekinah and Ziglag. And you immediately know what he's talking about, right? So let's talk about those words. And let's start with uh, Ziglag first. Uh, when, you know, the ancient king David was on the run, some people joined along with him. And scripture says it was all those who were in distress 
or in debt or discontented. That's who gathered around him. So this was the profile of David's congregation, like Robin Hood and his band of thieves, right? A congregation of runaways and renegades. Peterson says it was the dregs of the barrel, misfits, the people who couldn't make it in regular society, rejects, losers, dropouts. This was the profile of his congregation. And in the book of 1 Samuel, Ziglag is a place, it's a location of a very difficult experience for David's people and, and this congregation you know, of misfits. It was the lowest of the lows where the worst of the worst of their characteristics were on full display. Ziglag. You know, David and his misfits, they had been out at battle and they'd returned to Ziglag only to come home and realize that all their children and wives and possessions had been raided. And it says they wept until they had no strength left. And then the, this group of misfits, his people, they turned on him and said, let's stone David. And the text says it was because they were bitter in spirit. Ziglag. And so Eugene Peterson, he uses this word to name these difficult and dark kind of moments we can have. The moments when we see that the people of God, the people around us, they are very messy and broken and frustrating people indeed. And when you're in Ziglag, you don't see people as the holiest object presented to your senses. You're only seeing with partial sight. People look more like trees walking around and that's probably just putting it nicely, right? And if the patriarch Abraham was having a zigzag moment in our passage in Genesis 18, you know, he would have only seen three human visitors. He would have seen strangers intruding on his space and time, you know, requiring his hospitality, consuming his resources and inconvenience. You know, if he was having a zigzag moment, he would have failed to see the divine mystery before him. And thankfully, his eyes were open, but that probably had more to do with grace than it did with old Abraham's eyesight. You know, when I look back on some of the advice I learned, or was given, sorry, you know, when I first started out church planting, you know, I can't help but have like a, a Sarah moment and laugh. I was told, I kid you not, by multiple people, when you build your launch team, get like the Navy SEALs of Christians. They're like the cream of the crop. You know, people who get the vision off the ground are willing to sacrifice, don't cause any problems or conflict, and just essentially go through life without any issues, except the one issue, which is getting this vision off the ground in milestones, you know, the Navy SEALs of Christians. But that's not who God brought to David, and that's not who God brought to the Apostle Paul. Paul says to one of his churches, not many of you were wise by human standards. <laughs> I mean, I would never dream of saying that to you, but Paul might. You know, God did not bring a team of Navy SEAL-esque Christians to start St. Peter's Fireside because that's not the church. When the church is always composed of broken, messy, challenging, frustrating, discontented, hurting, limping, struggling, admirable, kind, patient, gracious, sacrificial, loving, spirit-filled, Jesus-following people, and because of the nature of who we are then, we're prone to these kind of zigzag moments when with human eyes alone, all we see is our common mess and brokenness and frailty and sin and folly and shortcomings. We see inconvenience and we're frustrated with those around us. And sometimes like zigzag, the tension boils over, the conflict erupts, and we're left wondering, like, what are we doing here? What can God possibly do in this place, in this mess? 
And we might be tempted to pick up a stone or at the very least throw in the towel. Ziglag. But then there's Shekinah. Complete contrast to Ziglag. Shekinah is a Hebrew word that describes when the presence of God is felt, encountered, sensed, or even seen in a place. So in Genesis 18, God opened Abraham's eyes to see that something more was happening in this strange visit. Abraham could see Shekinah. He knew he was speaking with the Lord, however that worked in the moment. He felt and encountered and sensed and saw that the spirit of the living God is present. You see, Shekinah moments for us are when we can see the great mystery of the people of God, that within our brokenness, within our frailty and humanity, within these fragile and cracked jars of clay, Christ Jesus is pleased, in fact, to dwell. The spirit of the living God dwells in each of us. And then sometimes this veil is lifted from our eyes, and we don't see trees walking around. Like Peterson puts it, we see word of God-shaped, Holy Spirit-created lives of sacrificial humility, incredible courage, heroic virtue, holy praise, joyful suffering, constant prayer, and persevering obedience. We have these moments where we can see past our prejudice and bias and judgments and our shortcomings, and we see a human being made in the image of God. We see a beloved child of God. And we don't just see past our humanity. In fact, what we see is the fullness of our humanity. And so when we see people of God as God sees them, Shekinah. And when we don't, Ziglag. And as a pastor over the past 10 years, I get a front row seat to this experience of seeing our flawed humanity, seeing my own flaws, and then seeing Christ dwelling in us and Christ dwelling in me. And, and I have my Ziglag moments like you do, to be sure. But as time has gone on, it seems that God gives me the grace to see people as he sees them more and more. Shekinah. And what I've learned is that when you learn to see as God sees, you, you don't gloss over the full picture. You see, I, I've learned that it's not necessary to diminish our sinfulness in order to see God's presence in us. In fact, it's the opposite. When we see that Christ dwells in very real people like us, flaws, sins, and all, it reveals just how deep God's love for us truly is. You see, a biblical anthropology, see what I did there? Came all the way back to anthropology, finally. It says we are sinful and beloved. We're flesh and spirit. We are far worse than we dare imagine, but far more loved than we can comprehend. And it's challenging to hold these tensions together, to see it at the same time. It's easy to point to one or the other. You see, we only see the worst part of ourselves or others, Ziglag. Or we only see our dignity and belovedness, Shekinah. But the challenge is to see Shekinah shining forth even in Ziglag. Because in Ziglag, in all that conflict, what does David do? The text says he withdrew and found his strength in the Lord. Because he believed he could find Shekinah even in Ziglag. So that's thing one, the challenge to see. Now, thing two, impaired vision. I think we can all agree, right? It's challenging to see people this way. But it is just part and parcel of our anthropology. Research psychologists, time and time again through studies, have shown that we have a tendency, and I'll confess this, I have a tendency, 
to see the worst qualities in others and only the best qualities in yourself. Anybody? It's, I mean, it's a proven fact. Humanity has this tendency to see the worst qualities in others and the best qualities in ourselves. We have impaired vision, it seems, both ways. The way we see ourselves maybe should be a little worse, and the way we see others maybe should be a little better. And all sorts of things can impair our vision, right? Hurt, past experiences, frustrations, you name it. So I just want to name one thing that has impaired my vision of seeing you well over the years. When I was a teenager, I had a tight-knit group of friends, Darren, Steve, and John. And we spent all of our time together. And my friend John, he knew how to skateboard, which I secretly envied. And he was cool for the 90s, you know, like baggy pants, chain-connecting wallet to jeans, uh, army tank tops. Like, if you're picturing anyone from Dazed and Confused, you're getting close. John, he was just cooler than I was, and I knew it. But we also had this tendency to get under one another's skin. And in frustration, he once shot at me, you think you're so much better than me, so much more important than me. And it took me off guard. It took me by surprise, and I immediately denied it. I didn't think it was true. I actually thought, you know, you, you don't see me at all. You're, you're looking past me. And after the first year of church planting, I was teetering on burnout, and so I went on a mandated vacation in the summer, and during this time, I had time to reflect on what was really driving me to strive so hard. And on the one hand, I was just trying to escape the grief of a friend's suicide, and so I threw myself into work. But in that striving and that working, there were some issues that were evident. I desired a platform. I desired to be known. I desired influence. I desired more jokes to land. I desired a lasting legacy. Like These were some of the things I identified, and I'm grateful some of those desires remain true. And perhaps then, I realized John didn't look past me, but perhaps he looked right at me. And maybe he was right all those years ago. Because here I was, years later, having to admit to myself, I still wanted to be important. And it was hurting my well-being and impacting my relationships. The good news is it turns out I'm not much different than Jesus' first disciples. You know, on a few occasions, they were busted by the Lord himself for having arguments about what? Who was the greatest? Who was going to get the best seat in the kingdom of God? The disciples, they were arguing over self-importance. You know, self-importance. It's this desire to be noticed and respected, this ambition to make your mark. But it has to be your mark above others. That's the catch. Others have to be below you in order for you to be the greatest. So I want to be important really means I want to be more important than others. And that's what my old friend John felt when he was around me. And I have to admit, for a long time, I, I lived this way unaware. You know, this quest for self-importance, it seeped into the early days of church planting at St. Pete's. So before I say anything else, let me say I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the way my self-importance has impacted our community over the years. Self-importance, it poisons how you relate to people and how you see people. You know, in the disciples' case, the argument over who was greatest reduced their friends to point of comparison rather than companions for the journey. In my case, the 
pursuit of self-importance reduced you to how you fit and serve the vision I had for this church. And I'm grateful that the Lord has helped me repent and and heal from this desire of self-importance, but I'm sorry. And as much as I, I feel like I've wrestled this sin to the ground and overcome it, it still seeps in sometimes, and I'm sorry. Truly, I'm sorry. Self-importance has impaired my vision, and sometimes it still does. And I'm guessing, hopefully, some of you can relate to this. So how do we heal from it? You know, beneath the hunger for self-importance is a deeper, vulnerable longing. Yes, self-importance, it's a form of pride, but often pride is a cover for shame, a sense that you're worthless. And this is what we call toxic shame, and it's haunted me at different seasons of my life, and it's taken much prayer and counseling and true friendship to address it. And so self-importance, it masks a deeper longing for dignity and worth. Because it's scary to think that maybe we really are as bad as our worst moments. And it's hard to believe that we could be loved in our most unlovable places. Friends, this is the message of the gospel. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Being loved at our worst, that is how this toxic shame is healed. We receive God's love through the power of his Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says just a few verses earlier. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And we also then receive this love as we allow other people, trusted people, to see us at our lowest and darkest and bleakest and most hopeful hopeless places, and we discover that, yes, we are even lovable there. Because this helps make the love of God tangible to us, God's love in and through people who love us. And so it's through personal encounters with the Holy Spirit, and it's through these kind of encounters of other people loving you that self-importance loses its power. Because I don't need to be better than people to find my worth. I actually need to be with people to discover it. Because shame, it isolates, right? Makes you think no one could ever love you. You need to be alone. And then you mask it with pride, and pride becomes competitive, which then isolates you. So the dynamic of shame and pride are isolated. But the gospel brings us together on level ground and says, you're all terrible together, and you're loved there. And there is a power of grace that we can actually draw closer together in those places through the power and grace of Christ. And in those moments where you can see that, where you get to encounter it, Shekinah, right? Shekinah. And so a lesson I learned is that self-importance is a barrier to seeing you because self-importance is actually a symptom of being unseen yourself. And so receiving grace to heal And whatever impairs your vision of others, bringing that to the Lord and saying, Lord, because of this stuff going on in my life, whatever it is, it impairs how I see people. I'm only seeing in part. I'm only seeing walking trees. Please reach out. Touch me. Heal me again. And I believe it's this double knowledge of ourselves that we can see ourselves as sinful and beloved that then becomes a wellspring of grace to persevere through zigzag because Shekinah is at work even if it's dim to our sight at the moment.
So that's thing two, impaired vision. Here's the last point, learning to see. You know, self-importance and a whole host of other things, they can impair our vision so that it's easier just to see zigzag. But as we encounter grace, as we are seen and known by the love of Christ, we, we learn to see. And learning to see is part of our discipleship. We are the blind man in Mark's gospel. We're learning to see more than trees walking around. We're learning to see more than just the surface of people because Christ is reaching out and he's touching us and he's healing us and he is not content to leave us partially healed. He wants us to see. Now, this may happen in a moment like this man. It may take place over a lifetime. But we're learning to see. That's part of our discipleship. We're learning to see the people in this room as people made in the image of God, people who are filled with the Spirit of God, people who are adopted and called children of God, people that Christ is pleased to call brothers and sisters. We are looking and trying and learning to see what is sitting before us. And we're learning to even see our neighbors as people made in the image of God. They may not yet Jesus know Jesus yet. The image of God may be hard to discern in them, and yet we're trying to learn how to see that God loves all people and is calling all people to himself. And what I've found is that God can graciously open our eyes at times. That, you know, you can have this heightened sense of sight that just allows you to see that everything is, in fact, spiritual. And it allows you to ex exclaim, you're like, the Lord really is in this place. And you know, this, this does and it can happen. These kind of moments, these epiphanies where you just see properly that the person knitting in front of you is, in fact, knitting unto and with the Lord. There's someone knitting, in case you're wondering, and it caught my eye. But what I've found is that you can't just depend on these kind of one-off holy moments to see people well. That learning to see is, in fact, an act of discipleship, and it takes time, and it grows with your spiritual maturity. This has less to do with your age and how long you've been following Jesus and more to do with your ongoing growth in Christlikeness, saying every day, all I know of me to all I know of Jesus. My impaired vision, Lord, help me see. And slowly, although we see through a glass dimly, we begin to behold people for who and what they truly are. Last year, St. Pete's uh, finally got a larger office. You know, for eight years almost, <laughs> We had like five to seven people in like less than 200 square feet, like around a perimeter. It was tight. And this new office meant I could actually take pastoral meetings not in a coffee shop, which was incredible. And so I set up two chairs in my office and above them two icons. And one icon is the Holy Trinity by Andrei Rublev, and the other is just named Trinity. It's a Greek icon from the 1400s. It's likely depicting Abraham and Sarah serving and waiting on these three mysterious visitors. And between the chairs is a small side table and a withering plant that everybody obviously thinks I should water more. And these paintings, I've placed them there right above the people I'm looking at as I'm listening to and walking alongside them. I've placed them there to help me remember the mystery of faith. That Christ dwells in me and Christ dwells in them. It reminds me that when I meet with people, I'm also meeting with Christ. And believe me, I fail to see that at times, I confess. But these paintings, they draw me into this reality that together we're sharing in the life of the Trinity. Like Abraham and Sarah, my work then is to make this hospitable space to tend to this reality. 
And the withered plant, it reminds me that whatever I may see, even if I see Ziglag in the moment, God can bring life out of barren places, that God can work with withering plants and breathe new life. And over the years, and especially over the past year, I've sat and I've listened and I've seen people in, in this office space and in other spaces, and I've seen people in this community earnestly seeking Jesus, vulnerably sharing their lives, you know, making space to discern what is he doing in my life. I've walked along people who are struggling and carrying burdens and serving others in beautiful and sacrificial and gentle and humble ways. I've, I've walked along those of you who are forgiving and extending forgiveness or struggling to forgive, but you're having the conversation. You're remaining engaged. You're trying to figure out what it means to walk with Jesus in the situation you're facing. I've got to listen to story after story of perseverance that whether through success or failure, you're going to keep walking in the direction of Jesus. I have had the privilege of just getting to listen and see what the Lord is doing. And so much of my work has slowly become, here's, I don't have anything to tell you about what you should do. Here's what you're already doing and here's what the Lord is doing. I'm just, a, I'm just sightseeing. I'm pointing it out. And in seeing you, then, I've seen the place where God dwells, Shekinah. And someone recently told me that, you know, she grew up in the church. She's had many good and wonderful pastors. Uh, but she told me that I was the first pastor that really saw her. And it was just so humbling. Uh, it was humbling. Because it felt like, okay, this lesson has been learned, and I'm still learning. And so it's been such a beautiful gift to see all of you, to see you as I've been able, and to dwell in Christ together, this mystery of living life in the Trinity together. And so thank you. Thank you for letting me see you. Here's my encouragement. As you learn to see as God sees, don't diminish your sinfulness and don't diminish your belovedness. Learn to see how your sinfulness can actually amplify how deeply God loves you. Because at the worst place, at your most unlovable moment, the thing that makes you retreat into shame and isolation, it is there that God loves you. And that becomes the wellspring for learning to see others as Christ sees you. And this isn't easy work. Of course it's not. And so we pray that by the power of the Spirit, we could have the courage to be seen and to see. We pray that Christ might reach out and touch our sight and continue to heal our eyes, that we may see that the people of God around us, the people we're walking together with as a church, they are, in fact, the holiest object presented to our senses. And seeing each other, it is essential to the story of St. Peter's fireside. Scripture lets us see the Apostle Peter at his very worst moment, at that first fireside. But then at the second fireside, we also get to see how Christ sees Peter and continues to call him to himself and loves him and offers him grace and continues to walk with him through that darkness and into the light. See, Jesus sees and loves us sinners at our worst, and yet he calls us brothers and sisters and children of God and 
as your pastor, I've learned and I'm still learning to see you this way, and I just want you to know it has been grace upon grace to see you. So let's pray.